Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to a keynote speech on security by the Right Honorable Priti Patel, MP, the United Kingdom Secretary of State for Home Affairs. Please welcome our host, Dr. Niall Gardner, Director of Heritage's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom and Bernard and Barbara Lomas Fellow. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation here in Washington, D.C., at the heart of, of Capitol Hill. Uh, and welcome to our audience, uh, both uh, here in Washington, also across the world as well. We have uh, a large number of viewers online. And with all the, the COVID restrictions currently in place uh, here in, in Washington, D.C., uh, the bulk of our audience is actually watching online. So a big welcome to those watching, especially uh, from the United Kingdom uh, as well. And it's a great pleasure today uh, to host the, the British Home Secretary, uh, Priti Patel. Uh, Priti was appointed to her present role in July 2019. She has overall responsibility for all Home Office uh, business, including the National Security Council and oversight of Britain's security services. She was elected Conservative MP for Whitton in May 2010 in the County of Essex and previously served as Secretary of State for International Development, Minister of State for Employment, and as Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury. I first met uh, Priti as a new MP over a decade ago when she visited the Margaret Thatcher Centre for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. She is one of the most principled and fearless leaders in the United Kingdom today, and has always stood proudly for the conservative ideals embodied by my former boss, Margaret Thatcher. On issues from protecting Britain's borders to standing up for law and order, Priti Patel has been like a rock, steadfast in the defence of the British people. Priti was one of the leading voices in Britain's Vote Leave campaign, and the fact that the United Kingdom is once again a truly sovereign nation outside of the European Union owes much to the hard work, determination and vision of leaders like the Home Secretary. Please join me in welcoming the Right Honourable Priti Patel MP. Thank you. Well, now, thank you so much for your introduction. And it is such an honor to be here today. It really is. And it's wonderful to see um, our friends on this side of the Atlantic. And of course, for me personally, um, knowing Niall, but also being associated with the foundation as well, this foundation has a well-established reputation and an incredible history, a proud history of speaking up for liberty and advancing conservative values and beliefs. And of course, back in 1989, it was Margaret Thatcher, Niall's former boss, who took pride in declaring that we in the Conservative Party are conviction politicians. We know what we believe, we hold fast to our beliefs. And when elected, we put them into practice. And being here today is very much a reminder that our international coalitions throughout the Conservative movement are based upon principles, purpose, 
and conviction. And of course, we are the generation of politicians who follow in the footsteps of political giants, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, the very people who stood up to our enemies, confronted the hard issues of the nanny state, defeat, defended our values with conviction and belief, and tackled those who stood in the way of our economic freedoms. And at the core of our value system is the principle of safety and security. Now, in my role as Home Secretary, the safety and security of the people of the United Kingdom is fundamental to everything that I do. Security and safety can only be achieved by working with our friends and allies, because not only are we united in our shared values, but we are united in our desire to be safe. It also means playing my part in protecting the rules-based international order, and of course, our abiding desire to be free. Because our freedom is utterly dependent upon security. So if you ask me if I'm more of a free marketeer or more concerned with law and order, I will tell you now that that is a false dichotomy. Free markets do not exist in a state of nature. They can only exist with the rule of law. You cannot have free markets in a thriving economy if people, property and businesses are unprotected. What capitalism represents is freedom the space to create ingenuity, the very thing our adversaries seek to undermine. And they do so not just to gain economic advantage, but of course to destabilize us altogether. And that is something we must not let them do. Nor can democracy flourish or function without security. Someone cannot vote freely if she is scared or intimidated or if her choices are not legally upheld. Democracies collapse in the absence of security. And nobody has a three, the freedom to thrive and succeed if they're not safe and secure. Security is the great rock upon which freedom sits. And if you chip away at that rock, freedom will be eroded bit by bit. And there are so many of us that speak passionately about how hard won our freedoms were and of course, how easily they could be lost. Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were steadfast and united in their belief in freedom as they confronted the evil empires of communism and socialism, and they were right to do so. But we must never forget that that rock that underpins those freedoms must also be defended, and that it will crumble if we do not work together to preserve it. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Freedom seemed to have won so comprehensively that it was e even suggested that history had ended. 32 years later, we know that that is not true. There is nothing inevitable about the future. And if we want a future where we are prosperous, happy and free, we will have to continue to work for it. And with that, that means cooperation amongst allies on our shared security threats and holding a clear understanding that if we don't have security, we will have none of the things that we want or even take for granted. But of course, many of the things that we do not want. So today I will speak about the global picture and the various threats that we face as allies, all of which endanger our shared freedom and prosperity. This year we saw the withdrawal from Afghanistan a major event pressing a broad range of challenges amongst us all. The United Kingdom responded with great speed in extremely difficult 
and dangerous circumstances to bring Afghans who shared our values and also worked alongside us to safety and extracted others who were vulnerable by the change of regime in Afghanistan. Strengthened by our Five Eyes and other international partnerships, our commitment to NATO remains vital and steadfast. And we see in the case of Afghanistan why security and the safety for women and girls is so vital, and also how it is central to economic prosperity. The United Kingdom, like other allies, has proven a safe haven for people at risk, including women, girls, and minority groups. We won't need to explain to any of them that freedom depends upon security. And all the while, we need to be alive to the changing situation in Afghanistan and how it alters the geopolitical and global security picture, as well as closely following developments elsewhere. The context for 2021 and the years ahead is very different to what has gone before. And it's also incumbent on all of us to act to tackle existing threats, but also to protect ourselves against future ones. State threats materialize in multiple forms, physical threats to people and to life, such as through assassination, forced repatriation or harassment. The physical threats to our way of life and to our values, including sabotage, threats such as espionage and interference, supplemented by invisible threats, cyber attacks, malware, fraud, extortion, and intellectual property theft, resulting in the erosion of our freedoms, harm to our economic stability, all underpinned by a deliberate intent to destabilize our security and the rules-based order on which it stands. And then there are the threats that relate to geostrategic interests. Occasionally, these actions will be completely brazen and so overt, such as with the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006 and the Salisbury Novichok poisonings of 2018. These outrages were perpetuated with very clear intent, the clear intention of sending a message that perceived disloyalty would not be tolerated. That is completely at odds with freedom. I recently announced in relation to Salisbury that arrest warrants are now in place for three additional men. And just yesterday, I confirmed that we in the United Kingdom will hold a public inquiry into what happened. And I will be robust in my continuation of my work to pursue justice in terms of what happened around Salisbury. But when this outrage occurred in the United Kingdom, we called for support from our international allies. And when we expelled 23 undeclared Russian intelligence officers, 28 other countries and NATO joined us and supported us, resulting in the largest collective expulsion ever of more than 150 Russian intelligence officers. This degraded Russians' intelligence capability for years to come. Our friends knew that this grotesque act was not just a human tragedy, but an assault on our nationhood and liberty. It is a reminder of how intricately freedom and safety are one. Meanwhile, espionage is evolving. Governments continue to spy on each other, but spying now has a much further reach, including into our universities and businesses. 
It is not only inherently improper for countries to try to influence each other, which is, of course, exactly why I'm here over this side of the Atlantic this week. But importantly, we can never allow national security of our nations to be compromised. And despite the power of diplomacy, one of the most significant threats to our security continues to be, to be malign interference. The activities of those hidden relationships where public figures are encouraged to pursue and push another country's interests, hack and leak operations, and organized crime and trolling. We in the UK will no longer tolerate such brazen attacks and the brazen way in which we have seen our national security subject to such activities. Our upcoming legislation will represent the biggest counter-state threats legislation in over 100 years. To share just two examples, we will modernize existing counter-espionage laws to better reflect the contemporary threat. And we will improve our ability to protect official data and strengthen the associated offenses. Our strategic partnership must continue to address all this activity, which is uninhibited and growing along with all the other threats that we see day in, day out. Absolutely critical to this remains our CT partnerships with the US, where our shared focus and approach is central to protecting both our countries, which I am determined to de deepen even further over coming months and years. Of course, we still face the threat of terrorism. This too is a threat that mutates. Following major incidences, there have been two challenges, two changes to the threat level in the United Kingdom in recent weeks. It is now at severe, the second highest level. The United Kingdom's approach to terrorism of all kinds takes place under four main work streams. Prevent, pursue, protect, and prepare. And it is thanks to the superb and largely unsung work of the United Kingdom's counter-terrorism agencies since 2017, that 31 plots that were in the latter stages have been foiled. The threats we face today have, of course, changed. They can play out in the battleground or in a bedroom. And low sophistication is changing the way we must all act to defend ourselves. As with all security issues, as terrorism becomes more complex, so our response needs to become more sophisticated and nuanced. We must constantly strive to refine our approach and strengthen our domestic and collective resilience. To respond to an evolving and serious threat, we are scaling up our efforts to tackle hatred and radicalization and strengthen our capability to disrupt those who seek to radicalize others into violence and terrorism. This of course means working closely with policing relevant experts and other government departments and experts to build a picture of possible threats to society. And I will continue to use every tool and every lever at my disposal. One of those tools is data. Considerable data sharing is already happening at the highest levels to protect us from terrorism and criminal activity. And I will continue to push the United States and other allies for further cooperation in this important area. Islamist extremism is so significant. It is an enduring threat. It is heavily influenced by theatres of conflict and geopolitical changes and how these are presented online. A belief that democracy is decadent and evil is of course the core tenant of Islamic extremism. 
The United Kingdom is committed is a committed member of the global coalition against Daesh, co-leading the effort to counter propaganda and hosting counter Daesh communication cells. Now, since I became Home Secretary in 2019, I have prescribed four extreme right-wing terrorist groups, all of which spread vile anti-Semitic propaganda. Sikh separatist extremism has also caused considerable tensions in recent years. And while we stoutly defend the freedom of expression, it must always be within the law. We have expanded our disruptions capability to better address those people who seek to radicalize, but who operate often intentionally below legal thresholds. We now need to focus on how we can go further to analyze, prevent and disrupt the spread of high harm extremist ideologies that can lead to community division and to radicalization into terrorism, particularly those that radicalize others but deliberately operate below CT thresholds. There are a wide range of offenses and powers that can be used to counter the threat from extremism, and we are working to maximize their use. These include powers to regulate charities, broadcasting and education and immigration powers, and offenses such as encouragement of terrorism and public order offenses. And today, I have laid an order in the United Kingdom Parliament to amend Schedule 2 of the Terrorism Act 2000 to prescribe Hamas in its entirety, including its political wing. Hamas has significant terrorist capability, including access to extensive and sophisticated weaponry, as well as terrorist training facilities, and it has long been involved in significant terrorist violence. But the current listing of Hamas creates an artificial distinction between various parts of that organization. It is right that that listing is updated to reflect this. This is an important step, especially for the Jewish community. Hamas is fundamentally and rabidly anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is an enduring evil which I will never tolerate. Jewish people routinely feel unsafe at school, in the streets, when they worship, in their homes and online. This step will strengthen the case against anyone who waves a Hamas flag in the United Kingdom, an act that is bound to make Jewish people and the community feel unsafe. Anyone who supports or invites support for a prescribed organization is breaking the law. That now includes Hamas in whatever form it takes. If we tolerate extremism, it will erode the rock of security. Now, I've led work with colleagues to protect our country's intellectual property and other interests. I've also launched a new counterterrorism operations center, bringing together policing, the intelligence agency, and the criminal justice system, coordinating their expertise, resources, and intelligence in the state of an art facility. Meanwhile, our Victims of Terrorism Unit is there to provide support for all victims, regardless of their nationality, after a UK-based attack. We have to carry on working phenomenally hard through our Five Eyes partnerships and other international partnerships. And I will always encourage Five Eyes partners to strengthen our arrangements when it comes to the appalling and abhorrent issue of child sexual exploitation and abuse, as well as counter-terrorism. The instant communications enabled by modern technology, which is so positive in so many ways, inevitably 
makes the challenge of keeping our people more safe rather hard. And it also demands an international response, a global response, and that is what I am pursuing. Terrible ideas and falsehoods spread like wildfire, radicalizing and emboldening. The incitement and financing of terrorism are both rife online. Now, freedom of speech does not include the right to incite terrorism. The Global Internet Forum to, of, to Counter Terrorism is an example of strong progress, but the truth is that we need to do so much more. End-to-end -end encryption brings further risks. Indeed, in my view, it jeopardizes the good work that has gone before. Messages are already encrypted as standard, but end-to-end -end encryption where neither the platform operator nor law enforcement can see the content jeopardizes much of that work. Reasonable people instinctively understand that law enforcement has got to be able to track and tackle the sharing of terrorist material or child abuse images where it has a legal warrant to do so. That would be the same in the offline world. Merely removing offending accounts from a platform is nowhere near good enough and social media companies need to take greater responsibility for the harms, the very harms that they are responsible for. And I will continue to call on our allies to back the United Kingdom's approach of holding technology companies to account for the harmful content that they, content that they host on their platforms and if they neglect public safety when designing products. Our online safety bill will, will place on technology companies a binding duty for care of their users. And end-to-end -end encryption will not release companies from that duty. It is hyperbolic and wrong to assert that these concerns are really about snooping on the blameless or an assault on freedom. If that were so, I would be the first to speak out. But this is about public safety and keeping people safe from evil. Now, it is through these very platforms that illicit finance enables most of the shared threats we face from terrorism, organized crime, and other malicious actors to thrive. The risk of dirty money is one that we are all aware of, and it requires a significant global action to tackle illicit financial flows. The G7 delivered strong commitments to tackle corruption and kleptocracies as part of the United Kingdom's presidency, as will next month's Summit for Democracy here in the US. Now, our close relation to illicit finance is, of course, cybercrime. Now, as technology develops, so do the opportunities for cybercriminals. The arrival of 5G and the Internet of Things has created a multiple of new opportunities, but also vulnerabilities including inside people's homes. The rapid advancement of 5G has been a salutary reminder to us all that we can never stand, feel, stand still in the field of technology and innovation. Our security and freedoms are linked to the very way in which our strategic partnerships advance technological solutions, and we must never be left to rely on technology that presents a risk to the security of our nations. Deep fake technology provides opportunity for fraud and identity theft for the exploitation purposes and extortion. There have been attacks on national infrastructure, businesses, individuals, civil society, and organizations of every type. Even political parties are vulnerable now to ransomware attacks. 
At the very least, these assaults on our way of life and our these are these are assaults on our way of life and our national integrity. At the worst, su as such, with these attacks on our CNI, they represent an immediate and a grave threat. The United Kingdom has a specialist cyber law enforcement network, and we are shifting to a whole of cyber approach. And that broadens the scope of our national cyber strategy beyond the cybersecurity to now cover the whole of cyberspace. By the end of the year, we will publish a national cyber strategy that will strengthen law enforcement and make our approach much more collaborative. The Budapest Convention has helped to foster international cooperation on this issue, and the United Nations is developing a new cyber crime treaty. And just last month, the UK hosted a session on countering illicit finance as part of a multilateral event led by the United States, seeking a new global coalition of ways of disrupting ransomware attacks. And at the G7 summit, I called on all states to identify and hold to account cyber criminal gangs who operate in their territories. Now, perhaps the most chilling threats are the ones that we cannot see. Bioterrorism is the stuff of Hollywood movies and of nightmares, but sadly, it is all too real. It will flourish if we allow the breakdown of rules-based international order, as we saw in Salisbury, and in the vile use of chemical weapons in Syria. Even when a biological problem does not necessarily steam from, stem from a wicked deliberate act, when it comes to diseases, the threat can be enormous, and of course it does not respect international borders. Chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear defense is yet another area that demands that we stick together and work together. And even if someone is not killed by a biological attack, the impact on their health could easily be so devastating that their freedom to live their full life is severely compromised. We cannot hope to stay safe or live freely if we are sheepish about calling out such wrongdoing. And what is true of minor domestic criminals is equally true to an international scale. Several governments are willing and capable of overt and covert action that undermines the UK's national security. This includes such activity from state or state-based organizations in Russia, China, and Iran. Now, we respect the people of every country, but we will do whatever it takes to keep our country and our allies safe. The British government's integrated review, published earlier this year, was a review of our national security and international policy and it made it very clear that the actions of the Russian state pose an acute and direct threat. I've already spoken about Salisbury, but since then, we have repeatedly exposed the reckless and dangerous activities of the Russian intelligence services. We've called out Russia's malicious cyber activity, sanctioned individuals responsible for hostile and malign activity against the United Kingdom and our allies introduced new chemical weapons, global human rights, and a global anti-corruption sanctions regime, and cracked down on illicit finance. Now, last year, working in tandem with Europe, we announced sanctions against the Russian intelligence services for cyber attacks against the United Kingdom and our allies. We also took robust action in our response to the poisoning and the attempted murder of Alexei Navalny, enforcing asset freezes and travel bans against 13 individuals 
and a Russian research center. As the US and the UK set out in April this year, Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR, was behind a series of cyber intrusions, including the SolarWinds compromise. There are also significant human rights concerns in China, and that's in relation to the Uyghurs and also Hong Kong. Now, in the United Kingdom, I'm very proud that we have not forgotten our strong ties with Hong Kong. We created new visa routes and new routes of settlements for Hong Kongers with British nationals overseas status, who will now be able to live their life free from, from the fear of oppression. And in July, the United Kingdom and our partners were able to confirm that Chinese state-backed actors were responsible for gaining access to computer networks via Microsoft Exchange servers, accessing email accounts, acquiring data, and deploying malware. This affected more than a quarter of a million servers worldwide, and those hit included the Norwegian Parliament and the European Banking Authority. The United Kingdom signed a bilateral agreement setting out acceptable behavior in cyberspace with China in 2015, and we continue to hold China accountable for it. In December 2018, the UK government and 14 other countries called out China's Ministry of State Security for breaching the agreement. In February, a Belgium court sentenced an accredited Iranian diplomat based in Vienna to 20 years imprisonment for his role in a plot to bomb a conference in Paris hosted by Iranian dissidents. The Belgian State Security Service stated that the plan for the attack was conceived in the name of Iran and under its leadership. In July, the US DOJ announced that a New York court had unsealed an indictment against four people resident in Iran for their involvement in a plot to kidnap an unnamed Iranian-American journalist. The indictment also detailed four other individuals under surveillance by the network, including one based in the United Kingdom. Prosecutors said one of the conspirators was an Iranian intelligence official, while the other three were assets of Iranian intelligence. All of this shows that complacency for us all is simply not an option. Now, to conclude, you will all sense the extraordinary and evolving threats we face at home and abroad. And my message that defending the freedom we share requires us all to act in an agile and coordinated way to combat shared security threats and defend our shared values and the rules-based order. The whole country in the United Kingdom was shocked only last month by the brutal killing of a member of parliament and that was my dear friend, Sir David Amos. And last weekend, we saw a fatal incident outside a hospital, a maternity hospital in Liverpool. Both are being investigated as terrorist incidents. Now, I'm very grateful for the way politicians and others from other countries have held out the hand of friendship. A show of solidarity goes a long way, but the fact is that these dreadful events were not unprecedented and that we have to work ferociously hard to defend our freedoms. Effective national and international security policies mean giving each threat and hazard the resources it needs, while always maintaining the core expertise in each area and having the ability, at a moment's notice, to surge capacity into a crisis. Finally, it's worth remembering that things can change for the better 
as well as for the worse. Some of the UK's closest allies today are countries who we have fought wars with in the past. And while we will not hesitate to protect ourselves, it's very much our preference not only to enjoy economic and diplomatic relations, but also to be friends. Countries that embrace freedom invariably become more prosperous, and with that, they also become safer too. Thank you. Thanks very much for a, a tremendous speech, a very, very robust Thatcher-like speech today. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, of course, a great um, pleasure to, to host you here at the, at the Heritage Foundation. And I um, should mention that you know, the other day I saw um, the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. And uh, I'm actually uh, very privileged today to be interviewing the, the real-life boss, actually, of, of James Bond, if, if, uh, if Bond was a... Uh, was a, a real character today, so um, it's, uh, it's an immense uh, pleasure today, uh, Pretty. And um, Pretty, you, you've been a, you know, a tremendous uh, admirer, of course, of, of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and uh, soon after you became an MP, uh, you visited Washington. You made a point of visiting the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. Right. I think we had a, a, a wonderful cup of tea at that time. Uh, and uh, in many ways, you know, you embody the, the, the British dream daughter of immigrants to the United Kingdom. You've risen to the position of, of Home Secretary, one of the most powerful positions in the country. Um, could you talk a bit about the influence of Margaret Thatcher on, on your own life and shaping your, your thinking uh, and, and how her example has, has influenced you in your career? Well, thank you, Niall. And um, I, as the daughter of immigrants who came from East Africa to the United Kingdom and, you know, who grew up in in Britain during the 1980s, I saw the incredible change that Margaret Thatcher brought to our country from that period of decline, that institutional decline, the decline of our nation in the 1970s, to literally something that my father still speaks about to this day. She empowered people. She gave people the freedom to succeed. Um, she believed in the ingenuity of the human spirit. And for her, everything that she did in terms of her policies. Her policies were about freedom, emancipation, empowerment, economic prosperity, giving people the chance to really make the best of themselves. And alongside that, of course, she brought in a property-owning democracy. She gave people the chance to keep more of their hard-earned cash through lower taxes. She fundamentally reformed our country. Um, and I, she reformed our country to become the powerhouse um, that we all know and love Britain to be. So her influence was just phenomenal for me. It really was watching someone, a woman of her background, in the highest position in British politics and government, um, bringing that emancipation and freedom to people and giving people that conviction, conviction and confidence to go out there and live their lives in such a free way. Um, and so she's, she's influenced my politics and my, my own views, my value system, my belief system and also fundamentally um, drew me into Conservative Party politics as well. Um, but I think, you know, more importantly for, for, for me, looking back at her legacy and following now, obviously, in one of the great offices of state um, in the British government, um, I really look back and think, thank goodness we had such a robust 
determined leader, a true conviction politician, so authentic in values and beliefs that really, um, you know, structured our country, led our country, brought our country forward. And it is only because of her, really, that I have the sheer privilege of holding the type of office that I do today. Um, and, you know, having come up through the ranks of the Conservative Party as well, you know, we fundamentally believe in these values um, in our party and we are authentic in our values and beliefs, obviously, when it comes to conservatism. Well, that, that's great to hear. And of course, there, there's tremendous interest in the United States, I think, in Margaret Thatcher's uh, leadership. And, and we recently hosted uh, Nikki Haley, uh, where she spoke about uh, the influence that uh, Lady Thatcher's uh, examples had in shaping her life and career as well. Uh, and um, of course, Lady Thatcher was instrumental in, at a very early stage in her final book, Statecraft, in making the case for a British exit from the European Union. She was the first British leader to talk about the idea of leaving the EU. Uh, and as always, she was decades ahead of her time. And, uh, and pretty, you, you've been uh, a leading voice in support of Brexit for so many years, and you were one of the, the lead figures in the Vote Leave campaign. Um, could you talk about what Brexit means for Britain's role on the world stage, and also for the US-UK special relationship? Well, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've, um, I've campaigned to leave the EU for, well, a long, long time, um, it's fair to say. And there's a reason for this, and like Lady Thatcher as well, I mean, she, her battles were infamous, really, in terms of her dialogues, her discussions, you know, with politicians in the continent, but also more broadly with the EU. And of course, fundamentally, I think Britain post-Brexit is very much about our freedom. It is, as I've already said, about the freedom to succeed, the empowerment of our nation to regain our sovereignty and our decision-making, and to ultimately, um, you know, chart our own path and look to the future in a totally different way. And with that, that also brings new opportunities, new opportunities with more enhanced strategic partnerships on trade, for example, but on security, um, having the ability, as we've already seen, I mean, security is a very, very good example when you look at the recently announced AUKUS partnership, um, which clearly means that, you know, we're looking outward in the world, to the world, in a very different way. Um, and I already referenced in my remarks as well, our work with the Integrated Review, our security partnerships, the way we look now to the Indo-Pacific, how we are building new relationships, both transactional relationships on trade. But fundamentally, this is very much about the freedom to succeed and the empowerment it will give our nation. Um, but that's very much in the international sphere. And then, of course, domestically, we have a whole program of work in our government now post the pandemic around building back better, which I know is a familiar um, vocation here in the US too. Um, but it also means about how we can rebalance and level up the United Kingdom. We've had too many parts of the country that have been left behind for too long. So new opportunities around inward investment, job creation, um, infrastructure programs, and that is at the essence of Britain's post-Brexit agenda, both domestically and internationally. Yes, a tremendously exciting time for the United Kingdom uh, outside of the European Union as a as resurgent uh, power on, on the world stage. And, and of course, um, you know, among US conservatives, uh, you know, Brexit is hugely popular uh, and it is seen as a great uh, you know, development for the cause of for freedom and liberty on the world stage. Uh, and in your speech today, uh, you sent a very powerful message to um, to Hamas, 
that Britain will not tolerate its terrorist activities. Uh, and, and I notice already that you know, Hamas has issued an angry response, uh, and as the terrorists uh, always do. Uh, and this is a, uh, you know, a decision by the British government that will be uh, very warmly welcomed here in the United States and, of course, by uh, America and Britain's allies across the world, including Israel. Uh, and Hamas has been, uh, without a doubt, uh, a, a very deadly uh, terrorist uh, organization. And you reference in your speech as well the role that Iran has played in supporting terror as a state-sponsored terror, even on European soil. A number of foiled uh, attempted terror attacks by Iran in recent, recent years. Um, with regard to the actions taken against Hamas, is this also sending, of course, a very strong message to, uh, to Tehran? After all, the Iranians are the, uh, the active funders uh, of, of Hamas and supply them with, with weapons and so on. So. Well, it's very clear, and my speech was um, in incredibly clear around our adversaries and the threats that they pose to us. But fundamentally, I mean, if we are to secure our freedoms, we absolutely have to stand up against and speak out against organizations that are the proponents of such appalling harm. And by that, I don't use the word harm in a loose sense whatsoever. I mean, terrorist activity inciting, inciting hatred, inciting terrorism, training camps, sophisticated weaponry, all these types of activities absolutely have to be deterred. And there is so much that we still need to do, I think collectively as allies, um, but also within the international space as well, to recognize that these harms are simply not going to disappear overnight. And of course, there are countries, our adversaries, who are deliberately and absolutely intent on funding, supporting, promoting, propagating some of the most extreme acts, extreme hostile acts, that will undercut us, undermine our way of life, destroy our values, destroy our freedoms, democracies, and also our economic prosperity. So this isn't just, this is only one prescription that I've announced today, and I've mentioned other prescriptions too, but fundamentally, we can never ever take our eye off the ball when it comes to those countries, Iran being one of them, and I've referenced others too, that are out there to completely um, destroy our values, our way of life, but do us the ultimate harm. Absolutely, and also sending a very strong message that anti-Semitism will not be tolerated at all. And this is, this is a message, of course, that um, you know, should be you know, widely heeded across, across Europe, where we are seeing, mm. without a doubt, a rise of anti-Semitic attacks taking, taking place. Well, I think one of the saddest things, I've been a member of parliament for 10 years, and anti-Semitism has dominated my time in parliament, my time in politics as an active politician, certainly in the United Kingdom. So it's well-versed and well-known, the acts of anti-Semitism that have taken place in the United Kingdom, and also some of those in political quarters as well that have been proponents of that. That is simply unacceptable. And even this year alone, in central London and other parts of the country in the United Kingdom, we have seen the most abhorrent and appalling acts of anti-Semitism um, leveled against the Jewish community, and that is simply not acceptable. And we will always stand up, we will always speak out, we will always say that we will not tolerate anti-Semitism, which is racism. And I think it's absolutely right that politicians such as myself and others continue in that fight to stop anti-Semitism and call it out. That's, that's a very, very... Um powerful message um, to send against those who promote um, evil like anti-Semitism. Uh, and um, you also, uh, in your address, um, 
uh, referenced the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, could you talk a bit about the you know, potential sort of national security uh, implications of that withdrawal with the Taliban back in power now uh, in Kabul, uh, the, the rise again of, of ISIS and al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan? What, what does that mean for the United Kingdom's security of, of Europe as a whole? Well, I think first and foremost, I mean, we have to look back at, you know, the last 20 years and the incredible work. We should never, ever lose sight of the incredible work and also the, the enormous sacrifices that have been made around Afghanistan. We've seen service personnel from the United States, the UK and other allied forces as well um, lose life. Um, we've seen loss of life, obviously, from service people that have gone in there to bring about stability but ultimately to squash and eradicate that ability to attack plan from within Afghanistan. So, you know, roll forward 22 years, things have absolutely changed, withdrawal, and we've all been part of that huge evacuation effort that we saw in the summer, which was just extraordinary um, and, and deeply troubling and deeply traumatic, actually, for those that were involved in that whole evacuation program. But the reality, as I've said already, we can't stand still. We cannot be complacent. Um, we will see new challenges within the region. And the fact of the matter is, yes, our presence, is, physical presence is no longer in Afghanistan, but it will not stop us from working with coalition partners, our allies within the region, to absolutely ensure that we do everything that we possibly can to not just watch and have the intelligence agencies and the security agencies kept abreast and um, well-versed in terms of the harms that are taking place, the incitement that has taken place, the activities of particular groups now that you've mentioned, and there'll be others as well. Um, and we need to continue that. We absolutely have to continue that because it is that capability within the region that will protect us all domestically in the homeland. So again, post the summer, post the evacuation, we are working relentlessly um, with our partners. I've had the privilege, obviously, of meeting deputy, the deputy NSA in my visit um, in the last few days as well. And of course, those conversations are absolutely paramount. They will continue. We're working together. We will strengthen the work, the security, the intelligence cooperation. And of course, with that comes a lot of the data sharing and intelligence sharing that, that um, inevitably takes place. Yes, yes. And uh, it's certainly going to be um it has to be said, a, you know, a dangerous you know, few years ahead for, uh, for the free world. Uh, and, um, and also, um, you, you spoke as well about uh, the role that Britain is playing uh, standing up to uh, Russia over its nefarious activities, uh, including, of course, uh, the use of chemical weapons on British soil. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Russian forces, of course, are continuing to mass on the Ukraine border. The Russians are actively um, aiding and abetting the, the government of Belarus in uh, attempting to send illegal migrants into, uh, into Poland. Uh, and the Russians are becoming increasingly uh, aggressive uh, on, on so many different fronts. Do you see Brexit Britain really as playing a very lead role in Europe in terms of standing up to Putin's uh, ambitions? Well, I think actions speak louder than words. And you, know, you would have seen some of the, the activities that the British government um, have been involved in, particularly in Belarus, um, supporting um, the border in particular, obviously, with Poland, NATO allies coming together. And we're at the forefront of that. 
um, and irrespective of Brexit, I mean, we still are always at the forefront when it comes to our strategic capabilities, standing strong with our allies, supporters of NATO, our role in the multilateral system, all the key strategic and defence institutions, we are absolutely there. And that will not change. When we look at our adversaries, and I also referenced in my remarks, um, legislation that will be forthcoming in the United Kingdom next year, um, countering hostile state activity, it's quite clear the countries that we know who are the most active, the most pernicious, um, the most malicious as well, we've touched on Iran, touched on China, but Russia is absolutely there. And in the United Kingdom, we just have to look back over the last decade, some of the most dreadful, the atrocious activities that have taken place, poisonings on our domestic homeland. Um, the loss of life, um, I've mentioned the, in the inquiry that has just been announced actually into the poisoning of Dawn Sturges. These, we seek justice all the time, but fundamentally we must work together, learn from each other to make sure that we can protect our domestic homeland and stop these threats from materialising and manifesting, quite frankly, as we've seen on the streets of the United Kingdom. Yes, yes, and, and it's very significant, uh, of course, that um, Brexit Britain has, has emerged as the, the biggest adversary for the, for the Russians, mm, frankly, mm. Um, since uh, the UK has left uh, the European Union. And of course, that relates to the cyberspace as well. I've touched on cyber quite extensively. I mean, cyber is something that we simply cannot ignore. Um, we all talk about the bots. We speak about bots, you know, frequently. But it's much more than just the bots. It's the actual targeting of our CNI, targeting of our financial institutions, targeting of our health and well-being institutions, right down to some of medical practices, to the NHS, education establishments. And these are deliberate, hostile acts. The level of disruption clearly you know, is unthinkable, actually, but we have to be smarter, but we also have to be agile, much more agile in the way in which we can counter many of these moves and many of the tactics that they use. And you know, that also means being smart with our own tradecraft back. Yes, yes, exactly. And you know, at the end of the day, actually, Brexit is very bad news for Putin, I think. Yes. Uh, and uh, I just want to answer a final question, because I think we're nearly out of time. Um, uh, pretty, and it's with regard to, to law and order. And um, you have been, in my view, one of the very toughest and strongest Home Secretaries on law and order issues that we've seen in many, many decades. Uh, and you have taken a zero tolerance uh, approach towards, uh, towards crime in, in the UK. And you have actively increased police numbers in, mm -hmm. in Britain. Quite the opposite of these sort of defund the police campaigns that you're seeing on, on the left in, in the United States across many cities, but the, the British government has taken a very different approach. We need more police on the streets. Uh, we need to have a, a zero tolerance approach towards, uh, uh, towards uh, criminal activity. And could you talk a bit about your, your law and order approach, which, which I think would, would actually be a, a very good example for, for so many leaders in the United States as well? Well, of course, and you know, we are nothing as conservatives if we don't stand up for the values of law and order. Um, and I've spoken very, very openly when I first became Home Secretary about restoring the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom as the party of law and order, and doing so for some very, very good reasons. Um, increasing police officer numbers. I mean, again, you know, the British public, I think the public, wherever you go in the world, they want to know that they are going to be safe 
and secure in their communities and in their neighbourhood. And with that, of course, that means more visibility when it comes to policing, police officers on the streets, um, and more police officers effectively arresting criminals and doing much more preventative work when it comes to crime. But I've gone further, um, not just in terms of recruiting more police officers, but actually toughening our laws and strengthening many of our laws when it comes to sentencing and sentencing powers. Now, that area doesn't actually sit, sit solely with me. It sits within the equivalent of the DOJ here, our Ministry of Justice. Um, but even so, we have worked across our government to make sure that we have the highest sentences, um, the most stringent sentences. So, for example, on attack planning for counterterrorism, we have changed our laws and we have increased sentences now to over 14 years, and there's a whole raft of work that we have taken place there. Um, and as we speak, we have going through the House of Lords, our second chamber, um, a piece of legislation called the Police, Crime, Courts and Sentencing Bill, and it effectively does what it says on the tin. It empowers the police to be tougher in their acts around sentencing. It actually does a great deal to protect the police as well. So, I mean, it is appalling, absolutely appalling, that the left take this position to defund the police. They also spend a great deal of time now attacking the police, from what I can see. Um, we believe in protecting our police officers, so we are putting in new, a new covenant um, to protect our law enforcers and emergency workers from attacks and things of that nature. But alongside that, I've also put in new powers and new laws, strengthening laws around protests, the type of protests that basically undermine our way of life. So protests that lead to economic disruption and economic harm. Um, we've recently had nine protesters, I think it is this week, who have been given sentences for effectively causing disruptions to our strategic road network across the United Kingdom. Um, there's a tendency for some of them to claim that their environmental campaign is to glue themselves to our strategic road network, which is absolutely counterproductive to the economic health and well-being of our country, but also some of the other activism that we have seen. So I fundamentally believe that the British public, yes, they want safety and security. Yes, they want the freedom to go on and live their lives and pursue their lives all within the rule of law and be protected by um, the laws and sentences that we have. But at the same time, I think it sends a very, very powerful argument and support back to our police for them to know that their government, that their government of the day is on their side and that we back them and support them. That's a, that's a tremendous message. And, and I hope that uh, you know, US leaders are listening carefully to what you have to say here, because it's exactly what we need to see over here in the United States uh, uh, as, as well. And, it's been a, a, a fantastic discussion, uh, Priti, and a tremendous pleasure to, to host you here at the, at the Heritage uh, Foundation. And uh, we very much hope to, uh, to welcome you back to Heritage as, you know, as soon as possible. And thank you for your you know, tremendous, uh, inspiring leadership, you know, truly you know, walking in the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher. And, uh, and Lady Thatcher established the, the Thatcher Center for Freedom to to really uh, advance the US-UK special relationship. And, and I think you have done that tremendously throughout your, your political career, and you continue to do so today as, as Home Secretary. Uh, and we wish you all the best in all of, in all of your endeavors that you've outlined today, uh, crucially important, I think, for advancing the national security of the United Kingdom, but also, of course, you know, British leadership on, on the world stage. And the world is a far safer place when the United States and the United Kingdom are 
of working together. So, so thank, thank you very much, Freddie, for joining us. It's been a real privilege. It really has. Thank you so much, Niall. Thank you for hosting thank me. Thank you very much. And also a very big thank you to everyone for joining us today in person and also, of course, uh, online from, from across uh, the Atlantic as well. Uh, and uh, I would just ask if everyone could stay seated until, uh, until the Home Secretary has, uh, has left the auditorium. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>